Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. We were hoping to be joined by the new president of American International College today, but perhaps you heard that one of their buildings was struck by lightning last week. President Hubert Benitez did send us an apology letter. He says in part, quote, while I was... Very much looking forward to joining you today. I deeply regret that I won't be able to make an appearance on the Fabulous 413 this afternoon. So in advance, please accept my sincere apology. As many of you may have heard last Thursday, a lightning strike hit Corneotes Hall, I may be saying that wrong, on the campus of American International College, causing a massive fire. This building houses AIC's nursing program and provides classroom space for additional health science courses. The unfortunate event resulted in significant damage to the facility, making it uninhabitable. Now, with less than one month before the start of classes for the new academic year, we have had to quickly shift our daily activities, and we are fully focused on ensuring that AIC is taking all necessary actions to ensure a seamless continuation of students' studies in the upcoming fall semester. Given this very unfortunate circumstance, I am unable to attend today's interview with Monty and Khalees as I am engaged in meetings with internal and external college constituents, recovery personnel, and college trustees to initiate the process of rebuilding damaged campus infrastructure, fulfilling our promise of offering students continuity in their course of studies is the forefront of our work. Looking forward to having the opportunity to appear on the program soon. Sincerely, Hubert Benitez, president of American International College. We totally understand, and we hope to welcome him again soon. Later in the show, we'll continue our efforts to find the best pie in Western Mass when Pizza Quest 6 makes its first foray into Hampshire County. We stop in Northampton to eat at Joe's Cafe Pizza, (laughs) Spaghetti and Pizza House to put their (laughs) slices to the test. Must have the words in the right order. And folks from all over the Northeast threw on their best red clothes and headed out to participate in... The most Wuthering Heights day ever at the Energy Park in Greenfield this weekend. We'll find out why this particular Kate Bush song and dance have attracted so many people in so many places. And just before showtime, Monty and I learned of the death of Paul Rubens, better known to the world as Pee Wee Herman. I know. It's been a rough summer for celebrities we love. Summer. (laughs) Pee Wee was a comedic staple in both Khalees and my life, and maybe he was for you too. Got a favorite Pee Wee moment for or line from his big adventure or his time in the playhouse? Email the Fab413 at NEPM.org. Or text 1 800 639 9120. But first, turn out your lights so we can see the stars better. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Usually we do kitchen table astronomy with Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, at his kitchen table in Amherst. But where better to do astronomy than on a rooftop? Rooftop astronomy at McConnell Hall at Smith College with Smith astronomer James Lowenthal. Thank you for joining us for the Mr. Universe segment this morning, James. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about what you do here at Smith. I'm a professor of astronomy, so I teach classes in cosmology and time and uh, introduction to the universe and astrophysics and that sort of thing. That's amazing. I want to audit one of his classes, too. Well, and I should mention that James and I shared an office wall for, I think, a couple of years because (laughs) I had my postdoc here. And so I have fond memories of McConnell Hall and at Smith College. And we're looking at a dome where there's a brand new telescope that's going to be inaugurated soon for Smith College, right? That's right. We have a brand new 20-inch telescope made by a company called Plane Wave that delivers beautiful, tack-sharp, knock-your-socks-off images. And and we can't wait to, to show people the heavens with it. We're going to definitely come back for that, and I'm very excited. But what we're talking about today, while it's bright and sunny out, (laughs) is dark skies. You have, for a long time, been an advocate for dark skies. It sounds like something that could be ominous, but it is not. 
Tell us what the Dark Skies Movement is all about, James. It's about protecting natural darkness at night, which is something that our bodies are programmed, we're hardwired to need darkness at night for health. Uh, when the sun goes down, our eyes detect a drop in the blue light, and that sends a signal to the brain, says start producing melatonin, and that resets your whole body clock, and it helps prevent cancer, and it helps you go to sleep, and we are not getting that anymore. We have disrupted this fundamental circuitry with this thing called light pollution. So this is from the electric light that we have been using for the last hundred or so years, right? That's right. About a hundred years ago, everybody around the world could have seen the Milky Way from where they live. Now, uh, something like 90% of Americans cannot see the Milky Way where they live. We have whole generations of kids growing up basically never seeing the stars. Apart from biodiversity angle, which we are going to talk about uh, as well, but I mean, to me, it's mind-boggling because as astronomers, like, you know, you grow up and most people sort of like, hey, look at the stars. And, and historically, that has been the case where people have really thought about the nature of the cosmos, where we live and all of that stuff, because those questions were driven by simply looking up at the sky. With your own eyes, without a telescope, without a James Webb Space Telescope. There's this thing of awe that is part of that. And now for most people, it's not available. And so what kind of an impact in terms of how we think, how we think about the universe, how we think about our place, it's going to happen. Yeah, computer screen is great to see James Webb images, but there is something different when you are out in the dark sky, that sort of embodied experience. I think that, I think, is something that's missing. I completely agree. And, and uh, that's why when I ask my students, well, how many of you have never seen the Milky Way and half the hands go up? We say, we're going to fix that. And we, we rent a bus and we leave Northampton. We go to darker skies where you can see the Milky Way. And we bring blankets and sleeping bags and we spread out on a field and we lie down and we look up. That's all we do. We don't even bring a telescope. We just look up. People see their first shooting stars. They see the Milky Way for the first time. They see constellations. They sing and they cry and and they have really deep, meaningful experiences, and they experience that awe that Salman just referred to that used to be a, a, a daily part of our human existence. Maybe we appreciate it more now because it's not. So you get the awe because <laughs> you don't get it every night. <laughs> I went with my family to Monhegan Island off the coast of Maine. You have to take, you know, like an hour-plus-long ferry ride off the coast of Maine, but you're out in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, family, every night we're going out in the back, and we're going to lie down, we're going to look up. And they were mesmerized by the shooting stars, but I was like, Dudes, that thing that you think looks like a cloud is the Milky Way. It's the Milky Way. It's the, it's the cloud, the ring, the outskirts of the Milky Way. And almost never are we able to see it here in the 413. But where do you take the bus to with your students if you do want to see the Milky Way somewhere locally? There's a great map online called lightpollutionmap.info. And I encourage you to just check out wherever you are in the world, check that out, and you'll see immediately where to go. It maps the whole world in light pollution. And you'll see that the I-91 corridor, which we're on here in Northampton, is pretty heavily light polluted. If you just head east or west, half an hour, an hour, in either direction, you're likely to get to much darker skies. So sometimes we go to the Quabbin. There's a Smithy, uh, a 95-year-old alum who uh, lets us spread out in her, her apple orchard hilltop. <laughs> awesome. uh, sometimes we go the other direction. We go uh, towards Cummington. The best would be if we spent an hour and a half driving each way. We could get to southern Vermont and get to some really dark skies, and there would be real knock-your-socks-off uh, Milky Way. And we'll do that yet, but you know, for the for the big classes, we uh, we we stick to the Cummington or or um, uh, or the Quabbin areas. There are these dark sky parks that have been built. And James, uh, you were uh, in New Mexico recently for the American Astronomical Society, and there were 
talking about that. So can you say a little bit more about that? Because there is one in Maine. I think, is that the closest one or? That's right. Yeah, there are two uh, contiguous ones in Maine. Those are the only uh, big ones on this side of the Mississippi. Again, if you look at that light pollution map, you'll see east of the Mississippi is almost solid light, but there are a couple of dark holes in the Adirondacks and in central Maine and uh, somewhere, some places along the coast. But some on your right, there are official dark sky places, over 200 of them worldwide. They're uh, administered and certified by Dark Sky International, which is based in Tucson. And there is one here in Massachusetts that's just been proposed. They're in the process of, of, well, of pulling the application together, and that's the island of Nantucket. Ah. It's not Monhegan, but it's still, it's still not in, you know, in the middle of a big city, and they recognize that they've got, they've got a treasure there. They have a resource. They have a connection to history and culture and science and beauty, and uh, there are some advocates there that are, that are trying to preserve that. And they just passed their first big uh, dark sky protection bylaw in Nantucket, and now they're pulling together an application to make it an official dark sky place. I'm on a rooftop at Smith College right next to their giant telescope, soon to be inaugurated with our resident astronomer, Hampshire College's Salman Hamid, and James Lowenthal, who's an astronomy professor here at Smith and who's been advocating for dark skies and who recently was on Beacon Hill advocating for dark skies locally in Massachusetts. There is some pending legislation that you were speaking up for. Tell us a little bit about what's going on locally in Massachusetts in regards to dark skies. Sure, and for a bit of context, there are 17 or 18 states in the country that have some kind of statewide control of light pollution. Massachusetts is not one of them. In fact, every New England state has some kind of control except Massachusetts. We've been trying for 25 years to get that to change. And the legislature has, for whatever reason, just not quite seen fit to, to act on this particular set of bills. We've got a really good pair of bills, a matching pair in the House and the, and the Senate. They're called the Dark Sky Bills. They are now in the relevant committee, the Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy Committee. And if they're passed, what they would do is set very common sense rules for all state and municipal funded projects, which is streets and parking lots and schools and UMass and basic things like don't shine the light up into the sky, shine it down into the ground. Yeah, I remember years ago here in Northampton, new street lights were put in and they put in more energy efficient lights, but you had a very, you were complaining because they didn't cap the light. So all the light was shining up into the sky as opposed to down towards the ground, which is what you're trying to light with those lights. Yeah, you know, to, and we could go into the weeds on this more. The, the, light, the lights that, that Northampton put in actually do shine down only, but they also shine out sideways, and that causes a lot of glare, and it, it, it actually uh, makes the sky glow brighter, and they're brighter than they need to be, and they're bluer than they need to be, and all of those things in our bill would be limited. In fact, I think probably the streetlights in Northampton would, would actually be permitted under the bill, but there are lots of terrible lights that are going in every day that are not okay, that are much more egregious causers of light pollution that would be prohibited by this, this legislation. And I have to say, one of the great things about it, many people say, oh, that's going to cost us lots of money, right? We're going to have to rip out lots of old... No, it doesn't force anybody to change any existing lights, and it will actually save money. Because good lights are, first of all, no more expensive than bad lights, and the best way to save money on, on lighting is not to waste it in the first place. Make sure that the light that you're paying for is going in the right direction and not into your eyes, causing possible car crashes or, or worse, up into the sky. And if I can also add, this is one of those cases. I mean, we also live in an area where there is a lot of consciousness about climate change and sort of like environmental impacts and things like that. Well, this is something where you can actually make a really good impact 
but with minimal effort in the sense that, okay, well, all you have to do is you can buy light bulbs. Yes, we are not saying not to buy light bulbs. Just buy the right ones, like, you know, that are not more inclined towards the blue light and also just have shades. So this is something that's more about common sense, small things, but that can have a big impact. And if you don't think about it, the damage is quite extensive because it's not just about astronomers, which of course we love and everybody cares about astronomers. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but it's about nightlife as well. You know, fireflies, for example, I mean, they get impacted. And so there are a lot of other things, uh, especially around dusk, they all get impacted by the lights that we have produced. They get confused and so on and so forth. So this is one of those things that in terms of actions, well, it's not like, hey, don't stop eating meat or that type of thing. No, this is just like, hey, you get a light bulb? Yeah, get a light bulb. Get the right ones and just put a cap on it, shade on it, point them in the right direction. And that's about it. And that can make a huge impact. What are the right ones? If you're a homeowner, what should you be looking for? It's so easy to do. Uh, you go to any store, uh, whether it's uh, Foster Farrar or, or one of the big box stores, there will be fixtures that you can you can buy for your your porch if you're going to do that or your garage and there probably will be some set aside that are called dark sky friendly and basically the idea is the light should be in a can facing down that's it not facing out sideways if you're just going to replace a light bulb in an existing fixture just look on the light bulb on the on the packaging and make sure that the color is no bluer than 2700k that so the the higher the number the bluer the light no bluer than 2700 like 2200 would be fantastic that's becoming more and more widely available but 3000 is outside limit and 4,000 is way too blue. And don't use more than you need. And put it on a timer and a, um, a motion sensor so that your porch light is not on all night long when it's not doing any good except make it easier for the burglars to see your front door so they can get in and make sure that it's shining down only. Uh, the old-fashioned light bulbs that are sending out light in all directions, if you put that in a clear glass box on your porch, that's not so good. But you could get a sort of spotlight type LED light bulb. And all these are LED, by the way. Get one with a warm color, not too bright, maybe 5 watts. It's about 500 lumens. And facing down so that it's not shining in the eyes of the people coming up the stairs, but down. After the break, we'll find out how the Dark Skies Initiative might save cities and town money, while at the same time making the night sky more beautiful. More with astronomers James Lowenthal and Salman Hamid. Later in the show, Kate Bush aficionados descend en masse upon Greenfield for the most Wuthering Heights day ever, and the second half of our Pizza Quest slash Wine Thunderdome mashup with Michael Quinlan at Joe's Cafe in Northampton. And we're mourning the death of another one of our favorite celebrities, Pee Wee Herman, otherwise known as Paul Rubens. Got a favorite Pee Wee moment? Email the Fab 413 at nepm.org or text 1-800-639-9120. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Speaking with astronomers James Lowenthal and Salman Hamid on a rooftop at Smith College and talking about dark skies. And we mentioned the two bills, the matching pair in the House and the Senate on Beacon Hill that you went and testified on behalf of uh, just a couple weeks ago. And we talked about how municipally that would work. Any other things in these bills that we would be looking out for that we should know about to help protect light pollution to help protect our dark skies? Sure. There's a snafu currently uh, written into the, the way the state works that is an incentive for cities and towns to lose money and waste energy, and we want to fix that. Now, the way it works is this. Every city in the, in the state has some contract to power their streetlights, and the streetlight pricing scheme is done in, in segments, and the first segment is 0 to 50 watts, 
and they call that an average of 25 watts, and they don't meter the streetlights. They don't actually measure. They just assume, well, your streetlight's going to be on for X hours a year. We'll just assume that it's a 25-watt streetlight. But now with LEDs, streetlights are often much less than 25 watts. You could put in a 10-watt streetlight, and it might be plenty bright enough for you, but you're still going to pay for 25 watts. So this is a clear incentive for cities and towns to keep their lights on brighter than they need to be. Otherwise, um, they're going to be paying for electricity that they're not actually using, and our bill would help change that. So it incentivize them to not have them as bright or on as long. That's right. Our, uh, our bill would require the utilities to allow the lower wattage lights to be uh, properly accounted for so that cities and, and towns will then be able, if they want, to, to, to do the right thing, to say, oh, I'm just going to put in a 15-watt streetlight and be billed only for 15 watts for that streetlight. You have many times, either through a telescope or with your own eyes and your own dark sky experiences, seen what I've been calling the cloud of the Milky Way. As astronomers, what is that and why is that amazing? What is awe-inspiring about that for you that you think people should in incentivize them to want to go see it for themselves? Saman? I mean, first of all, that, that's not a cloud, right? I mean, you are normally, you see clouds and you go like, well, that's what it was. Here, you are seeing so many stars that you cannot distinguish them from one another. And that is the Milky Way galaxy. So we are- Where we live, it's our home. We are on the outskirts of it. So what is happening is you are looking towards, inwards, towards our disk galaxy. But it's not just the clouds. What, what I find sort of like, you know, more fascinating is where there are darker spots in that cloud. Because those are actually dust clouds with it, which are in the Milky Way. And it's not that there are no stars in there. It's because it's blocking light from the stars behind it. And those dust clouds are part of the Milky Way galaxy. So you are seeing so many things in our own galaxy simply by looking up. And it just gives you a perspective. We are on the outskirts at that particular time. The Earth is at a location where it's nighttime and you are looking inwards into the galaxy. What about you, James? What's, what inspires you about when you get to see the Milky Way in a dark sky situation? There's so many things. You know, Salman, you've referred a couple of times to the uh, the need for us to connect to awe and the, the human spirit that is uplifted when we experience that awe and that seeing the night sky and our place in it is is a surefire way to do that. Almost every culture in the world has looked to the skies for inspiration and for religion and uh, for cosmology and for mythology and for their origin stories. And the Milky Way always plays a, a role in that. Here uh, in the Northeast, uh, the Seneca people lived close to here. They saw the Milky Way as a path to their elders in the sky. Uh, many cultures see the individual stars as their elders. They're connecting directly with their ancestry when they look to the sky in the Milky Way. Astrophysically, I love to look at the Milky Way and think, oh, that's, that's like a giant wagon wheel, and we're inside it. We're, we're like an ant on a, on a spoke on the wagon wheel, partway from the hub out to the rim, and it's 100,000 light years across. And so I love to, to try to get beyond what it looks like a two-dimensional screen of the sky and think about the tremendous depth. Saman, you talked about the dark lanes, the dark patches in the Milky Way. There were cultures that actually had constellations based on the dark parts, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, in Australia and in South America. Um, the, there's a famous one, the, the kiwi, and the kiwi bird in New Zealand. They see the shape of a kiwi in the, the dark dust lanes. Uh, so it's, it's great fun and it's inspiring uh, to connect today's astrophysics with the culture of our ancestors. And I should mention that 
the Milky Way from the Southern Hemisphere, it's actually really much cooler than the Northern <laughs> Hemisphere <laughs> because it's like right in the middle. Like, you know, it's right up on top where the center of the Milky Way is. So that is one sad part about Northern Hemisphere. But, but, but. It is really amazing, so we shouldn't be hemispherists regarding this. <laughs> and we get the northern lights. That's we true. We do get them. Although they think they have southern lights too, don't they? Well, yeah, oh, they anyway. do, but the northern lights are better. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> these two bills are on Beacon Hill right now. What What's the anticipated timeline for a vote, and what should people do if they want to support it? Uh, it would be so great if people could just write a simple email or pick up the phone and call their legislators. It's very easy to do. You just uh, just Google um, how to find my Massachusetts legislator and you'll quickly find the phone number or email for your state rep and your state senator and just ask them to support the dark sky bills and quickly just say why it's important to you because I want my kid to be able to see the Milky Way uh, because it's important for pollinating insects which are severely impacted by light pollution because it's important for migrating birds which I care about a hundred million to a billion birds die every year in the United States due to light pollution. They get confused by light pollution. They circle overhead until they drop dead or they, they crash into buildings that are illuminated at night. For whatever reason, whether it's human health or the sky or energy waste or, or uh, animal life, tell your representatives, this is important to me. Please pass the dark sky bill. The goal here is that eventually we will have from fabulous 413 to fabulously dark 413. I love it. <laughs> In fact, astrotourism is a thing, and it's growing. People want to see the dark sky. You mentioned at the uh, a couple of minutes ago the dark sky sites in Maine that have been set aside, the dark sky reserves. People are paying good money to pack up their bags, get themselves up there, and and camp out or stay in a lodge and uh, stay up past midnight, gazing, soaking into the light of the under the light of the Milky Way. People actually do that here in Western Massachusetts. There are folks who come up from the New York City area every year and camp at Peppermint Park in Worthington. It's a destination. In fact, even here in um, in the 413, we've had people come out to the McLeish Field Station to stargaze from the Boston area. So it, it can help the local economy. It's certainly part of who we are here, that we, we relish the outdoors, we relish the natural world, and a naturally dark sky is part of that. And it's internationally too, because in Pakistan, I know that there are sort of like, again, people go in the northern areas over there towards the mountains. And also there is Balochistan, one of the provinces. It's very dark. So even though, I mean, I grew up in Karachi, which was like, you know, there was no dark sky over there, except when you had power breakdowns, which I happened frequently. <laughs> but, but yeah, so astrotourism, that's, I mean, really interesting. And that's also one of those cases, look, how much we want to, we are willing to pay to seek out dark sky, but you can actually have dark sky where you live with small steps that you can do that. Light pollution is a global problem with a local solution. All you have to do is turn out the lights. It's not like air pollution or water pollution or climate change where it's going to linger. If we stop producing CO2 right now, it's still going to, the effects are going to linger for years and years. No, no, no. Light pollution, you turn the light off, the problem goes away right right away. At the speed of light, as it were. At the speed of light. <laughs> and if people want to find that map where the dark skies might be close to them, what's the name of that the, the website to go to again? Lightpollutionmap.info. Astronomer James Lowenthal from Smith and Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, thank you so much. Thank you, Marty. Thanks so much. Thank you. Soon, we'll bring in the backwards pterodactyls when we learn the dance from Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights video for the most Wuthering Heights day ever. And coming up, we feast. It's Pizza Quest number six. We officially have more Pizza Quest than Lou Bega has Mambos. Go us. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
there's like iconic moments, you know, that you remember. I remember one time, my brother lives out of the country. I remember one time he was visiting and we were so excited because like the whole family, the, with our kids and my parents and everything, we all were here together. Like we're all pumped up. Like there's like certain little things that-, that Did you take up the whole back room? We took that back room on the left, yeah. Yeah, which is the, uh, the Susan B. Anthony room, yeah. Why is it called that? Is there a mural there or something? I don't know. The other one's the Montpelier room. Why? Again, don't know. Man. Is this two pizzas enter, one pizza leaves? No, no, no it's no. not like We that. just taste the pizza and go on quality of pizza. And to that end, like you were talking about Joe's earlier, like Joe's has always been in my top three. It has forever been number two on my list of pizza places in Northampton. At this point, for what's here, I would say it's probably number one. But it has never, ever dropped out of the top three. We're at Joe's Pizza on Market Street in Northampton, Pizza Quest. Somehow we're still here with Michael Quinlan from Table and Vine, who this is your family's place. You've been coming here since you were a kid. Will you go on vacation and leave your homeland of Northampton? Your first stop is always? Always with the airport, straight to Joe's. Yeah. Every time. And you're not the first person to say that Joe's is one of the places we should go to Pizza Quest to find the best pizza in Western Mass. I feel like it was always in the back of my mind on my list that we were just going to go. Yeah. Thank you to all the people that suggested it. And you also have had a fun relationship with Joe's, but not necessarily in regards to just pizza. No, they used to have specials for almost every day of the week. Not the weekend, but like starting on Sunday, going through Thursday. And on Sundays, an old co-worker of mine, Robin Penny, and I would come and like get a bottle of wine and get one each of the red and the white mussels because they had a special and mix them together. And that was our Sunday. We'd hang out, drink that bottle of wine, eat through the mussels. What's better than that? Great Sunday. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Probably a great Wednesday, too, if you think about it. Yeah. Shout out to Robin Penny, who continues to be awesome. Well, our Pizza Quest control, we always get a cheese and then pepperoni and mushroom. And after the Boema experience, we are always going to make the pizza and mushroom instead of getting whatever they have on the menu. Sometimes they have a pepperoni and mushroom option as a special. We have with to other, build your own. With other things on it. And so we can't get... It has to be the build your own without the the bells and whistles. What's your favorite thing to get here, Michael Quinlan? I do love the eggplant parm, when, even when I'm not nine months pregnant. For those who missed it, <laughs> if you are nine months pregnant, legend has it that if you come to Joe's in Northampton and eat the eggplant parm, you will go into labor that day that's, or very shortly later. That's uh, evidently, there's uh, some evidence of that it gets handed down generation to generation. I don't know if you can call it evidence, but... <laughs> The children are the evidence? Yeah, there's some anecdotal <laughs> Teach evidence. Teach them well and let them lead them away. <laughs> Show them all the beauty they possess inside. All right. All right. Let's dig in. Yeah. A little extra cheese on uh, this one. Not quite a roof, but plenty of it. And evenly dispersed toppings, which was a thing that we didn't quite encounter before. It's not Neapolitan style. This is very much like an American style pizza, but it's thin crust, which is awesome. Yeah, it's not a huge, it's not all crust. There's not a lot of leoparding, but there's a good amount of color on the bottom of the yes. crust. This pizza reminds me of the pizza that I grew up eating in my hometown place, a classic like house of pizza type pizza. If you're not dealing with Greek house of pizzas. Right. <laughs> Well, it's a whole thing. Like, Greek yeah. pizza is very different. In the Midwest, I feel like Kenji Lopez Alt would have things to say to me about this, but this, at least at this size, 
is what one would consider a tavern pizza. Where you've got a crisp, almost crackery sort of crust, at least where the edges are concerned. A abundance of cheese, like a good, like nicely balanced sauce. I love the edge too. I love how it, it's always almost always like a cracker by the time you get to it, you know? I love that. You know what this, this pizza reminds me of? Just Maybe it's just the way the cheese smells and tastes. But when I was a kid across from the Academy of Music, there was Harvard pizza here. And it was like the, the cheese pizza tastes just like this. It's like the same. Mm. There was a little thicker crust pizza, but... It was only a brief moment that they were here, but both Khalif and I lament the passing of Luna Pizza that was on Pleasant Street for a while there. It was New Haven in style. It had the fresh mozz. It had the hot oven crust. I used to go buy fresh mozz from them so I could go make my own eggplant parm at home. Wow. I mean, there's like one or two now still for me, but like the first pizza place where I would eat their pizza cold. I do not like cold pizza. Theirs was great cold, and I was astounded. And it wasn't just like being hungover and desperate. How would you find that out? I would order a large pizza for me, for me, <laughs> and I eat a lot, but not like a whole large pizza by myself a lot, even in my like mid to late 20s. So like there would be leftover because people wouldn't want the things that I wanted on pizza, like <laughs> tomatoes and anchovies. <laughs> so, oh, yes. Yep, because it's a really good pie. <laughs> Not everybody is like hip to the light of putting fish on your pizza, and it's fine. I was a latecomer to this. It's okay. Yeah, you grow up hearing like anchovies are gross on pizza, and then you do it when you're a grown up, and you're like, this is the most amazing thing of all time. I'm the only one at my family gatherings that eats the anchovies out of the antipasta. Nobody else wants them. I literally go and pick them all out and eat them all by myself. The problem is my family's full of foodies, so I have to fight my my siblings and my parents for them when something shows up with anchovies on it because we'll all eat them. And again, this is a new thing. Like in our childhoods, like we were not into it, but like now that we're all adults, we're like, oh yeah, no, hand us the salt. Right. Everybody grows up. Yeah. The older you get, the more disgusting the food you love is. We, we think we think everybody grows up, but I also know like several people who like won't go outside of the chicken tenders range, so. <laughs> right, even as grown adults, right? Even as yeah. grown yeah, yeah. If you have a refined palate as a child, like, I am so impressed. But, like, if you're, you know, in your mid-30s and you're still only eating chicken tenders, and it's not an allergy thing, because... I think it's pronounced, come on, bro. I'm so glad I wasn't drinking anything when you said that. There would have been a spit take. <laughs> All right, this is, uh not part of what we're pizza questing right now, but we do happen to have, with the wine ambassador from Table and Vine, wine on the table. So we might as well drink the Primitivo that we have tasted that won our wine Thunderdome and the Zinfandel with the pizza. I liked the Zinfandel with the cheese. It took out a lot of the tannins and left this really rich fruit that was that went very well with it. Still left that olive element, so you got this little tiny bit of salt that worked well with the cheese, I think. I didn't have a chance to taste the, the Primitivo with it, but I'll go back. I think the Primitivo goes excellent with the pepperoni and mushroom. It does have that magic combination where, like, the best thing about a pairing is it, it's not like you're tasting a bunch of individual things. It, it, it's become its own new flavor, and I love when that happens. Many years ago, we were sponsoring the WGBY, which is now NEPM, of course, wine fundraising dinner on, on their wine weekend. And we, there was a course served where there were two Cabernets served. One was very flashy, very modern, oaky, like sex appeal sort of thing. The other one was very classic, straightforward, tannin, really modest. 
and the wines when when they were poured, people were like going gaga over the the first wine, the oaky, like sweet, like awesome wine. And then this steak hits the plate, and everybody in the room changed, right? Like everybody in the room was like, oh, the other wine with the tannin and the elegance is like so much better with the food and the bruiser and the steak, like we're fighting. So I think that's the case with these two wines with the cheese pizza, you know? Well, I better try it with the Zinfandel just because you've been talking about it. So your name on it, buddy. <laughs> Monte Rio Cellars. Yeah, I think I'm split on where these go best. I think the California goes best with the, the cheese and not with the pepperoni, and the Primitivo goes way better with the pepperoni and mushroom. Also, fresh mushrooms. That's a big one. As opposed to candy. Yeah. You've seen this elsewhere. Yeah. This may, in fact, not be our first rodeo. This is good <laughs> The California is the topping. It's just got a little bit more of that oomph that it kind of becomes the topping for the cheese. Well, we know where Michael Quinlan stands on Joe's as a pizza place. It's literally your your heritage and your family. It is a it's a hangout for the for the Quinlans. It's like for sure. You know, you win lose baseball game, you show up here. Well, I, you know, I would mention that. So they have all the college pennants here, you know. And so when my son Patrick was accepted at Brandeis, we were like, oh, we have to find the Brandeis pennant at Joe's. Like we're in here looking around, and we found it. And we we're like, all right, there it is. Like we're all pumped up. And then my son Tucker went to Vassar. When he was accepted at Vassar, we were looking around. One night I said to Megan Sullivan, who's the owner, I said, Megan, I'm looking, I don't see a Vassar pennant. Do you know? She goes, no, I don't think we have one. So we brought her one. When we had visited Tucker at school, we brought one. And just, just here at the doorway, there's, I could see they're it right next to each other. Brandeis, Blue, Vassar, and Maroon, right? And so they're right there. And so Megan kindly always refers to that as Quinlan Corner. <laughs> Okay, so you're biased when it comes to the pizza. I, am. I mean, I, I love that this this place has like a, a map of landscape for like the rooms and they're all named. Right. <laughs> like a historical, like a real. Montpelier room. Yeah. Susan B. Anthony room. Like we're gonna go get we're gonna go get pizza at Susie B. You should show up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I also love like I still love Joe's. This is great pizza. And like to uh, Mark Latanzi's point. Who is uh, our pizzaiolo guru, former colleague, and now works for Wayfinders in Springfield. Even when you get, like when you get it, it comes in wedges, in proper slices, not in squares. Joe's is the best pizza in Northampton right now. Oh yeah. The bizarre nature of everything about this, but perfectly bizarre, wonderful, different, but also Hamp over noho kind of idea behind it. It's the perfect microcosm of weirdness that makes Northampton awesome and amazingly still weird. The family aspect of things that happen here. The murals. The fact that if you're pregnant and you have eggplant parmesan here that you can give birth. This is a place to check out. The fact that it still has its non-smoking signs up. That was the other thing I know. Yeah. On all the boots, it still says, thank you for not smoking. And it will say that, like... They're still grateful, though. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they are. I kind of want to smoke just to see if they'll stop. No, I hope that they will. I will say, like, we got two smalls, and smalls are slightly different beasts than larges here. You'll get a little bit more crust. It'll be a little bit thicker, but they're both good. When I'm thinking, like, neighborhood pizza place, this is exactly what I want. This. If you've got a Pizza Quest suggestion, you can send it our way, the Fab 413 at nepm.org, or text 1-800-639-9120. But have you ever wanted to dance in a field to a song inspired by a Bronte novel? So did my family and other folks who participated in the most Wuthering Heights Day ever yesterday, and we'll hear 
from some of them up next. And we want to hear your favorite Pee Wee moment. Pee Wee Herman passed away yesterday. And send us your fe- favorite Pee Wee bit at the Fab 413 at napm.org or text 1-800-639-9120. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Right arm up, halfway, all the way up, give it a sway, and back down, look to the right, back forward, little shrug and a greedy left hand raise the dead over into the prayer it's nine o'clock back to prayer and down and cup your face zombie walk what's your name vanessa brewster i live in greenfield for 20 years what are we doing here, all clad in red? Is this a cult? Yes, it's absolutely a cult. It's a Kate Bush cult. It's uh, the Massachusetts Kate Bush Society is putting on the most Wuthering Heights Day ever, 2023. Um, it was actually our friend Desi's idea, but Abby and I are running it this year, and we've done it a few years uh, since 2019. You know, a little something happened that put a pause on it in the beginning for, for I, I don't know, you know. And um, we are all here to celebrate Kate Bush. It's her birthday today. She's 65. And it's just fun. Kate Bush, an incredible British pop star who's had an incredible year because she had a resurgence in the pop charts thanks to Stranger Things. They can't help you, Max. There's a reason you hide from them. But you were doing this in Greenfield. We were already doing it. It's international. It was like London, Tokyo, Greenfield. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're on the map. And and, uh, people come and dance the dance that Kate Bush yes. dances in the video for Wuthering Heights, which is based on the book Wuthering Heights. Yeah, so I, I thought it was because she read the book, but she saw the movie and kind of, when she was 16, she saw the movie and like fell in love with the storyline and just wrote this song same day. And it's like a really interesting song also. Like the the, the composition is really great. The guitar solo is off the chain. <laughs> <laughs> we heard a live version right, of the yeah, guitar will, solo. Yeah. Chris, Chris Solo will be uh, playing the guitar solo alive with us when we go. So we've got like a hundred people here in red, like learning how to dance this dance. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 What is it that keeps you engaged in Kate Bush? Uh, I mean, she's awesome. That song is amazing. And I just love anything that kind of gets the community out and together. I know that sounds cheesy, but it is true. But especially when it's super weird. Like the people that are here just having a regular old picnic, they're like, what has happened? Why is everybody wearing red? And what is this weirdo dancer doing? trolls on the local newspaper are pretty hilarious. They're like, what? Yeah, it's pretty fun. Local newspaper's good, though. They represent. They're right here. They're covering this. I mean the people who make comments. Oh, yeah, right, right, The commenters. Greenfield recorders here represent. Cool. Cool. Well, I know most of the dance, so I'm excited to be here. Yeah. We'll get to it. Yeah. Sexy Kate. Throw her hands. 
Can I interview you for the radio? What's your name? Renee. Where are you from? South Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Wow, so that's a bit of a hike. It was. What's your name? Nikki. Where are you from? I am from Cranston, Rhode Island. Wow, so you've come all the way here for this most weathering heist day ever. Is this the only one in New England? No, there was one in Boston, I heard, but I don't know if it got canceled this year. I don't know what's on with that one. Yeah, I just came with my mom. Have you been to these most weathering heights days ever previously? Never. Never. We've wanted to. We've been trying to for years. Uh She grew up with, even when she was in the womb, I used to play Kate Bush music. So So this is a great mother-daughter adventure. You two are mother and daughter. Yes, I know. I now get that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So you're the big fan, but are you a fan too? Oh, I've been a fan since I was in her belly. My (laughs) sons are fans too, yeah. Are Are you thinking everybody's a poser that now likes Kate Bush because of Stranger Things or you feel not like it's good? Yeah. No, no, not at all. Welcome not to the club. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Did you already know this dance or did you need to get the instruction? Uh, the instruction was so helpful. I can't dance at all so it's very tough for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I still haven't got it down but I'm, I practiced a lot. You know and the video. Yeah. yeah. We've known the video but we yeah. know the dance ourselves. <laughs> it's incredible to watch so many people clad in red trying to do this dance. It's like it's guitar. Amazing. Like if someone's learning guitar for a certain song they say oh that sounds so easy and then yeah. you go to do it and you're like <laughs> oh no this is harder than i thought yeah. idea what I'm doing and I've never like even heard this song before and I just came because I like novel experiences and I want to check out something new and it was a chance to wear a dress and it's nice. You are wearing a beautiful red dress. I'm really enjoying it yeah. What's your name and where are you from? Uh, I'm Pat. I'm from East Hampton. Okay so you didn't come too far. I'm actually wait no that's not where I'm from. We live in East Hampton now. I live in East Hampton. That's what we that's what matters. What's your name? My name is Sarah. Where are you from? I live in Northampton. Did you? Are you a Kate Bush fan? Like, did you I know about am. this? Like, who dragged? This. So this is my extra Kate Bush dress that oh, yeah, okay. conveniently yeah, yeah. fits him. Um, I had up. to have two just in case. Yeah, yeah. But I was so delighted to know they do it in Greenfield because I always thought you had to go to England to do it. Uh huh. Here it is, a bunch of people in red in a field having the best time of their lives. Yeah, they've been doing this for years here. It's fantastic. What's your name? My name is Jada. Where are you from? From Sherborne. Where's that? It's about two hours east. In Massachusetts? In Massachusetts, oh, Wow, yeah. I thought I knew all the Massachusetts yeah. I didn't know that <laughs> one. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. So are, did you already know this dance before you got here? Uh, yeah, we've been coming every year that they've had it, which I think is a total of three years. Yeah. But um, What's your take on the people now bigger fans of Kate Bush because of Stranger Things? Welcome to the club or Total Poser? Oh, welcome. We're welcoming crew. <laughs> Big Bush heads. Bush... The, you know, we don't need to prune that bush. We just let it grow. We let it, yeah. <laughs> let it flourish. He's about this tall, officer. Oh my gosh, I think that's him. Now somebody's playing the guitar solo live. I'm Steve Damon. And where are you from originally? I'm originally from Greenfield. I now live in Gill. And you uh, came for this, most weathering heights day ever. Is this the kind of thing that happened when you grew up in Greenfield? Not at all. <laughs> this, you know, this area was the hole to me when I was growing up. You 
you I don't know, were you here when the hole was here? No. Okay, well that was a hole right there in Miles. Like a literal hole? Yeah, there there been a fire like mid seventies or so of the store that was on the corner. So when I was growing up in the mid seventies, late seventies, it was the cellar. So this is amazing what we've turned into it's a beautiful park. park. There's yeah. a, you know, there's a train car that is like a mini museum. The train goes right near here. There's a little playground. There's a stage here. Yeah. When when we opened Energy Park, I actually conducted a band that was back in 2001 or uh -huh. two or three. Uh -huh. I'm going with three. I think it was 2003 when the Energy Park opened. So it's, it's a solar powered park. That's what they call it, the Energy Park. Solar powered. Yeah. I was walking around before we got going, and there's a bunny rabbit down here. I spoke to not much of a conversationalist, <laughs> but uh, I talked to the bunny rabbit down here, and it's a beautiful spot. You know, Greenfield has turned into a small city. Yeah, since the city known as the town of Greenfield. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> What's your relationship to Kate Bush? My older sisters, you know, graduated Greenfield High School, and Kate Bush was big at that time. And I remember watching the original white dress, Kate Bush, uh, on MTV in, you know, like 1984, 85 uh -huh. at my friend's house. We didn't get MTV till 94. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Kate Bush, she was the weird English lady, yeah. you know, when I was in high school. Yeah. She's still a weird English lady. And I, that's what I love about her. I know. <laughs> and now she has, you know, she's coming back because of Stranger Things. Yeah. My students know Kate Bush in... We, we have Classic Rock Thursdays, <laughs> and the, the kids can come Where do you in. teach? I teach in Guilford, Vermont. Uh -huh. And the fourth, third, fourth, fifth, sixth graders can come in during lunch on Thursdays, and we have some rock concert going, you know, U2 at Red Rocks or Queen at Live Aid, you know, the big ones. I love it. And, you know, they'll come in, they'll ask for all these 80s bands, and I'm like, I remember them when I was in middle school, but <laughs> why do you know them? And... It's because the clash. The clash is huge with elementary kids right now. Yeah. Which another Stranger Things boost. Yeah, that's what they told me. I'm yeah. like, how do you know this? And like, <laughs> oh, do you know Stranger Things? I said, I've heard of it. <laughs> do you remember the first time I played you this? Mom and Dad were both arguing in the next room. So I played you the mixtape I made you. And it was the first time you got into music. Real music. You should check it out. It's pretty cool. Well, thank you. Great. Are we ready? We're ready. Yeah, okay. I'm leaving my post. And now you're free to ice skate. If only because we had the cameras. Both, both police and I kind of know both it. know it and we're doing it. Again. <laughs> yes. That was the fun good news from yesterday. The sad news from yesterday, this according to the Associated Press, Paul Rubens, the actor and comedian whose character Pee Wee Herman became a cultural phenomenon through film and TV shows, has died. He was 70 after a six-year struggle with cancer that he did not make public. I am a huge Pee Wee fan. Police. I am a big Pee Wee fan, but I think I loved seeing his cameos in things and hearing him in voice work most, even though one of my favorite things for his show was Grace Jones showing up on the Christmas special. Yeah, we're going to play that clip. This is when Grace Jones shows up on the most iconic Christmas special of all time, in my opinion, Pee Wee's Playhouse Christmas special. 
Somebody sent you something gigantic. Oh, easy. I hope it's not a fruitcake. <laughs> okay, Pee Wee. It's Grace Jones. Wait a minute. You're not the president. Pee Wee Herman. Duh. This package was supposed to go to the White House, not the Playhouse. Sorry, Grace. Back in the box. Since I'm already here, would you mind if I sang a song? Oh, go right ahead. What are you waiting for, Christmas? <laughs> We're not going to play the song because I have a strict no Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. And but I appreciate that about yeah. you. That sh that Christmas special in particular is so unapologetically queer in its best way. Pee Wee inspired me uh, my entire life to use humor and good naturedness to stand up to bullies. Like in the scene when he's in the bar and oh, Pee Wee's big adventure. Yes. And uh, he's about to get beat up by all these bikers. He uses fun and dance. To but, win them over. But also in that movie is the one scene that I'm pretty sure terrified the most of us because <laughs> I don't know of many folks who weren't just frightened out of their minds by the large Marge section. It was the worst accident I ever seen. But then like years later after Scandal, like seeing him in parts in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, seeing him show up on 30 Rock, like was always, always lovely to see him in whatever cameo like ended up happening it was just kind of the best oh uh, well we're gonna also don't sleep on peewee's big holiday the Judd yeah Apatow it is wonderful recent peewee movie it's so great i'm gonna watch peewee tonight rest in peace paul rubens peewee herman Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we'll celebrate the lives and cultures of those on whose land we live. We'll talk with the folks from the Potumpka, Pocomtuck Homelands Festival, which celebrates its 10th year this weekend in Great Falls. We'll talk with David Brule and Amelia Forhawks about indigenous tradition, past, present, and future. And the Hestia mural is getting a facelift from its original painters. We'll speak with the women making sure women's history endures in Northampton. Our director is Tony Dunnin by Toddler Plague Dunn. Our engineer is Betsy. Just wants to... That's not who she is. She's Betsy Lankdo. <laughs> she gives us avocados. Yes. <laughs> I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.